Hi there, welcome again to the Animation Industry Podcast. My name is Terry, and um, you should support this podcast on Patreon because basically nobody does. I think I have two supporters, so go check out my Patreon and help um, me make this podcast happen. This week I'm chatting with the duo who run the stop motion studio called Mystery Meat Media, and that is Ree Crawford and David Lauer. In our chat, they share how they independently got into stop motion, met at Phil Tippett's studio, worked on Mad God, then formed their own studio, and how they've managed to get a steady stream of stop motion work pouring in over the years. So now without further ado, let's jump in. Hello, Ree and David, and and doggo Veronica, was that right? Victoria? Veronica's dog number one, or actually oh. dog number two, Agnes's dog number one. And Agnes and Veronica. Yeah. What interesting dog names. I don't think I've ever met an Agnes or a Veronica and a dog before. Cool. <laughs> Can I ask if there's any any uh, reason for those specific names? Oh, man. Well, okay. Veronica's easy just because it was the the sound of her name and getting added to Agnes so Agnes and Veronica um yeah. it was one that sounded the best and it was different enough and I guess I should say I could say that uh Agnes is named after a woman that from Hungary that I was in love with when I was 19 years old wow it was the first time I'd ever met an Agnes and it was the first time I realized that Agnes wasn't you know a grandmother and um uh, I haven't seen this person in 25 years, but, um, you know, I decided to remember her with my uh, my dog's name. Wow. And my previous dog was also named Egon. So it's kind of, a, you know, Agnes felt like it was sort of adjacent to Egon as well. You know, the vowel plus the G. Um, that makes, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I love the history. And Agnes and Veronica almost sounds like a, some kind of dynamic mystery solving duo exactly. on TV. <laughs> the the idea I've, I've got sketches already there but it takes oh. place in the 40s so they're um you know agnes and veronica from so family. when can we expect to see this <laughs> well <laughs> you're a stop motion animator you know how long this stuff takes oh no well you just skipped to live action you already got the, the you already got the stars the two dogs um there was a show called wishbone when i was growing up starring oh. this like this like i think it was a beagle so why not just Agnes and Veronica also solving also solving mysteries, just revamp Wishbone. Okay, well, let's okay, let's talk about stop motion, because, you know, you guys have worked on a crazy amount of cool and wacky projects over time. And you both started at is it is it true you both started at uh, Tibbet Studio back in the day? True ish. Yeah. True ish. Okay. It's, l- tell me the story of how you independently got into moving tiny objects really slowly over time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll start by saying I'm a number of years older than David and you too. Um, And I started uh, making, I I was actually, I moved to California to go to school for music uh, to get, I actually have a graduate degree in electronic music. And um, while I was at school, it occurred to me that I could use digital cameras. This was in 2003. Um, that I could use a digital camera to make stop motion. It didn't have to worry about processing film and, and all that. So I checked one out from the AV department and just started. 
And, you know, the first time I saw something move, it was like, oh, yeah, okay, this this has to happen much more often, you know, than than just that. And so, but yeah, like I said, I was in music school and started picking up stuff about production and video and all that kind of thing, but was totally doing stop motion and animation on my own. And eventually got into working in post-production and uh, doing motion graphics type stuff, all still with this eye towards eventually wanting to to do stop motion all the time. But it was how I could make a living. Yeah. And around that time, I was working for a, a post company in San Francisco in maybe 2011, 2012-ish. And I happened to work with a composer named Dan Wool who we were both at the time working on uh, one of Alex Cox's films. It was a sequel to Repo Man. Um, I did the color for it and um, uh, uh, Dan did the music, wrote all the music. And while he was there, he came down and uh, while we were working on this together, he came down to the studio and showed me this, this thing that he had been roped into working on. It happened to be like two minutes of Mad God, you know, um, long before I didn't even know what phil was doing i mean of course knew he was i used to watch all the behind the scenes stuff as a kid but um <clears throat> he offered to take me over to the studio and and meet phil and because he was doing this like saturday volunteer crew thing and so we dan and i set a date i picked him up at bart and um drove up to berkeley and walk into the studio and meet phil tippett and he's real welcoming and like showing me all this stuff we come around the corner into this room and there's like maybe four or five people in there just slaving away, making like the little suitcases for that scene. Have you seen Mad God? Yeah, I have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pile of suitcases and some other, I mean, like piles of shit and stuff like that. But one of the people in the room was David Lauer here, who um, uh, I met for the very first time when I think I was, I like to pick on him now because I was probably the age that you are now then. <laughs> and um, I'll let you fill in yeah the other half. so just just like let me get this straight you were you went to school for music mm -hmm. then you wanted to make a music video no and i wanted to make little pieces of video that i could score like i wanted uh, to be a producer, you know um so it wasn't i mean it all ended up being kind of like music a music video in the end i mean so but yeah, so you like experimented with little stop motion. You were working like uh, a variety of jobs, like motion graphics, et cetera. And then you walk into Tippett's studio, and then somehow between that point and and fuzziness, you became a stop motion animator. <laughs> well, the fuzziness, I was, I was, I guess, I was uh, just going to take a break because okay, we get we can take a break. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it just I got to the point at which mine and David's paths crossed, yeah. so I thought I'd let you catch up <laughs> and then we'll talk about okay all right let's let's catch up <laughs> um so i had a bit more of a straightforward path towards animation um it actually started for me in high school uh i went to public school in massachusetts and it's, honestly there's no cool origin story it was just a incredibly dedicated uh art teacher at public school mr justice who is phenomenal. Mr. Artist. Justice. Mr. Justice. Wow. Yeah. Real inspiration. Incredible artist. Uh, really exploratory. Really just pushing kids to, to take art to the next level at a, on a high school uh, level. And he decided that we should have like an animation tutorial. 
um, we should just try out using some the digital cameras at the uh, AV department. We took them out. We did like paper cutouts from newspapers. Uh, we did like those um, uh, light up boards where you can animate just like the individual pixels. And then we also did some claymation and uh, as well as experimenting a few uh, computer programs for animation. And I just got bit by the bug. When, once we started doing claymation, there was really no going back. I'd been doing clay sculpts for a long time before that, but um, I decided that was going to be my, my path forward. And I applied to a whole bunch of different schools with animation programs, but California College of the Arts out here in Oakland really shined because they didn't actually have a full-time animation faculty. They had a lot of uh, artists in the industry who would come in and teach for a semester or two. And so they were really integrated with, with working in animation. It wasn't just an academic understanding of what animation could be from a fine arts perspective. It was really animation uh, as it exists in the field. And there were some really incredible teachers uh, Scott Nordland was a phenomenal uh, stop motion experimental animator, really introduced me to a whole bunch of physical techniques. Um, but the actual animation program at California College of the Arts was very, very young. Um, I think when I got into the program, I was the first year where I could start from freshman to uh, senior year and get the full four-year program. So it was a very small class of animators, maybe I think 18 or 19 people. And I was the only one who was fully pursuing stop motion. Um, I actually dropped out of the animation program and went into the individualized program so that I could get more materials and sculpture classes and things like that because I uh, wasn't particularly interested in pursuing like the computer graphics courses that were required in the curriculum. And uh, one of the teachers at California College of the Arts was Tom Gibbons, who was an animation supervisor over at Tippett Studios at the time. And he had been roped into the Mad God rebirth, you know, because there was maybe 20 years where Mad God was sitting dormant. And then there's this whole story of it getting pulled out of the archives and and getting digitized for posterity when a bunch of the Tippet guys saw it happening and, and urged Phil to, to bring it back. And uh, since I was the only stop motion animator at California College of the Arts, uh, Tom Gibbons offered to, to bring me into the studio. And if I wanted to volunteer on weekends, I could get some real hands-on experience just going in there, working in a shop, seeing how actual things would go like cradle to grave um he would kind of bounce me around a whole bunch of the different departments and uh he told phil that i was interested in animating so i kind of got a chance to uh see if i would fit in and um from there that's when i was working on hammering out little aluminum wires into briefcase handles when <laughs> re came around the door and the two of us were sort of pulled onto the animation stage and uh, began getting to, to animate together. And once we were shown to, you know, have the patience and um, the willingness to sit for, you know, six to eight hours every Saturday, um, 
we got booted off of the animation stage and onto the watch other animators do what they do watch and then we were just doing really small backup stuff whether that was camera moves or uh literally shaking a scrim so that it wouldn't have a moray pattern on the long exposures just so that we could watch the incredibly talented main animators do wow. their animation whether that was phil or chuck or gibby and then slowly we kind of worked our way up the ranks to actually being character animators on the show so okay that's oh go ahead sorry i was just going to add like the other thing that was really unique about the mad god experience is that even though like david and i were very well aware of different skill levels of the people we were working with and that kind of thing and i mean you know being hanging out every saturday smoking cigarettes with you know a literal master um there wasn't much of a hierarchy at all it wasn't kind of like a traditional production in the sense that you know we were never called assistant animators or junior anything it was kind of like phil would just sort of ask if you know how to do something and if you said yes great go do that um so it was kind of a way to get i mean i think for both of us i mean you know i i'm, I'm speaking for both of us but particularly for me it was very very much a, a filmmaking um you know, study more so than just animation, you know, just the fact that it was stop motion was why we were there, but, you know, we were getting to take part in lighting decisions and composition decisions. And, and if, if not contributing to decisions, at least seeing the decision-making process, you know, wasn't a, like you go support so-and-so kind of a thing. Sounds super awesome to be part of such like a, a ragtag, uh, type of project that's not super like organized well I, I don't know if it was organized but like hierarchical and like you have to come in as a junior and work your way up etc okay but I, I have some follow-up questions the it's it's kind of two parts it's for both of you but maybe David first um so you you got the bug in high school that sounds amazing that you had a like I went in media arts in high school and it was just like the teacher dropped us off in front of photoshop and left us for the semester like we didn't get to experiment on anything so that's amazing when you were going through school um it sounds like you were very confident in your decision to pursue to drop all the other types of animation and pursue stop motion only. Did you see because like Tibbet Studios and your professor uh, was also working there? Did you see kind of the light at the end of the tunnel and say, like, I need to focus on this if I want to get there? Or is it more like kind of a blind following the love of stop motion and you just were hoping you'd end up, you know, <laughs> in that realm at the end? <laughs> I had the good fortune of having some incredible teachers who had a broader perspective on animation where it, you know, almost every studio has a different software, whether it's Pixar or Tippet. A lot of people use Maya, it's true. Um, but what they were really focused on is you need to learn the principles of animation and if you have those skills, if you have the actual performance, emotion, mechanics uh, down, those skills can transfer onto any software. You know, it's not important to know the the hotkeys and the yeah. the little things like that in school. Like you, you're gonna have to relearn all of those things at any given studio. So I was really pushed to follow my passion, which was 
stop motion, just actually having the the physical hands-on experience of stop motion is gave me like the sentimental connection to to animation that really let me uh push myself in ways that I would lose patience for if I was just in front of a laptop rather than in front of the workshop. Makes sense, makes sense. Re, uh, you were working on, you were working when you went to Tibbet Studios. Did you have to have a moment where you were like, I have to, you know, quit my job to start volunteering and, and on weekends and stuff and like start doing all these tasks at on Mad, Mad God, sorry? Um, the answer is yes, but not the way you asked it. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, and sorry if I was a little bit misleading with my abbreviated past. So in, in graduate school, my thesis was a stop motion film immediately. Ah, okay, okay, okay. Music video for Sleepy Time Gorilla Museum. Immediately after that, I made another short film that had stop motion elements in it. And by the time I was Bill and David, I was a year and a half into making the moon's milk, which was, mm. my, you know, I guess, you know, the, the biggest thing I've made by myself so far, even though David is the main reason why I can't say I made it by myself, but, it's his. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I was, so I was working in post-production throughout that time. I had, I mean, and I, I learned, I mean, that education was important because I was studying other people's edits, you know, again, this was like part of the filmmaking inquiry. And yet, at the same time, uh, we did get this extremely challenging job while I was volunteering for Phil, while I was trying to make the moon's milk and still working. And, you know, I, I don't didn't and don't have much of a social life. So, you know, it was like work all day in this in the Presidio and in the city, come home and work until I fell asleep on the moon's milk. And then Saturdays go work on at Mad God and then go back to work, you know, um, <clears throat> but um, yeah, we got this particularly challenging film that was difficult technically, and, diff and this, it was a documentary, um, and uh, also difficult because the filmmaker was a nightmare. And um, the there was a day uh, something snapped. I don't maybe it was when I got home one night or what, but I realized I couldn't do that anymore, and that if I quit my job, I knew exactly what I was going to be doing. And it wasn't working on Mad God so much as working on the Moon's Milk, um, because I had I had gotten enough confidence and experience by that point from Mad God, um, and I guess I guess more it's just like encouragement, you know. I'd show show these guys stuff that I was doing and realize like, oh, I'm not just in in some weird vacuum sealed chamber somewhere you know there's people out there that are actually understanding what what i'm learning about you know and know more about it than i do even can tell me a lot and um so yeah the day came that uh i quit my day job and um actually it wasn't quite that simple we got uh both of us got hired at tippet studio and uh -huh. that was where we were the junior animators but they put us in front of the computer you know this was to learn maya um and uh you know which is like a great way to learn about animation but it really fucking sucks if you're trying to like you know live your life um but um but yeah so i don't know if i really yeah i mean i was gonna ask like i'm happy you said you were working at tippet already because i was gonna ask like it's a big decision to quit a job even if you hate it and and to work full-time either on your own film or like and to volunteer on another film like you know what gave you the, I guess, the confidence to say, 
other than like this really crappy situation, you know, like, were you working full, you didn't have a full-time job lined up? Yeah. I mean, well, Tippett didn't pay very well at all. It was, I took more than a like 50% pay cut to, right. to make that, that jump. Um, but I guess, I mean, it's, you, you've, you've been dancing around this, this idea the whole time. And like, so, um, David had this incredible relationship with Mr. Justice in high school. I had a mother who was a high school art teacher. So I literally grew up in an art room and it wasn't something that I took to immediately um, as a kid necessarily. In fact, I was a biology student when I went to college and then, um, but my dad was a photographer, for, you know, so my mom, I got this sculpture and painter, uh, you know, rearing and then my dad was a professional photographer and I, so I was in his studio all the time and then I felt like at a certain point music provides the the temporal you know linear aspect of editing and animation you know the rhythm you know the things that happen over time and um so I guess I would say if anything that's where I feel like whatever I have that accounts for confidence comes from and it's sort of to me not worth doing anything else hmm. uh, it's like I uh and I guess that was the conclusion I came to and my job was great I mean it was stressful it was a lot of work and I'm still very very close with with um my boss who's now my one of my closest friends um but it was just the particular type of work and the fact that the clock was ticking um and uh yeah it's just um yeah the it's it's a combination of confidence and just sort of like bullheaded um, yeah. person. It's, I mean, uh, I like what you said about it's not worth it to do anything else. Like I reached that I reached a similar, I guess, emotional point much later on in my life. Uh, well, <laughs> which, uh, you know, I, that inspired me to quit my job and just pursue animation. So I totally I totally understand that. Um, that makes a lot of sense. And it, it kind of gives more reason to, you know, why you why you push through and, uh, you know, produced all this stuff. And, and let me uh, let's I want to kind of like maybe wrap up the Mad God project, because I know that's a huge project, but I want to talk more about like you guys and, and like Mystery Meat, et cetera. OK, so. You know, I've heard about Mad God like forever. And then I finally saw it, I think like last year, whenever it came out, I can't remember now. And it was like, it was amazing. You're, you're seeing like somebody's brain outputting all this like concepts, uh, weird ideas and like all this stuff. Like, can you just give some like insight on behind the scenes? I'm just super curious to like, you know, it was animated over like 10 years, etc. Some of the sets look massive. It looks like... It, I can, I feel like I can kind of tell when one animator is working on certain scenes and another animator takes over, et cetera, et cetera. Can you just give me like some insight on some of behind the, the behind the scenes of like how it, how it went down? Yeah. I mean, there was pretty much a direct flow from Phil's brain to what was put on screen. <laughs> he would have uh, a series of these beautiful, super scribbly, uh storyboards that he would have in these like these uh notebooks of his where it was just these really you know pencil scratch drawn things in these notebooks yeah, yeah. and sometimes he would just leave uh his journals up on the 
on one of the work tables and you would just see this like super scratchy like runic font that he he writes in that just has his perspective that we now know as mad god as just like his lens through what he sees through the world so like just looking at like a flea market and seeing you know him writing about uh jewelry vendors clearly like bled into the sets that we were working with you know a couple months later and just having like all of the the jewelry and books and things pulled out of the uh the assassin when he's on the surgery table but he had this like write in a journal turn it into storyboards and then you know ask his crew of uh burrito fueled fabricators to be building these um gigantic sets i mean he had he had a very particular vision and he had the best way of him like letting go of being very particular or specific like he didn't micromanage fabricators he really encouraged everyone to uh stop thinking when they were building things like use as many uh natural reactions that allow you know uh conscious decision making to be taken out of the equation so he was mm-hmm. really into like anything that would cause splatters or reactions you know he didn't want people carving foam he wanted people spraying foam with acetone so that it would dissolve in strange natural ways that just isn't you know it wasn't that every detail was carved it was that we were just the conduits for erosion or other natural processes that made these super massive sets yeah and i mean re- very much related to that i think i think a massive takeaway which is, is absolutely how mad god was made that that both of us got is learning from phil that you want to get what you can get for free from the materials so like hmm. foam spray it with acetone you know it's this and all of a sudden you've got this like incredible you know decayed structure um and um but yeah the the other the other thing I was thinking about while you were talking, David, is like, especially when when we were more involved only on Saturdays, there was this kind of like crazy punctuation, you know, where come in on one Saturday and Phil would have just gotten started tinkering with a setup, you know, on one side of the stage. And, you know, this was back. Um, I mean, I, I don't not trying to speak for him or anything, but I think he was sort of looking at taking half a step away from the day-to-day of the operation of the studio and the the, like big Hollywood projects so he would like go to dailies in the morning and then just sneak away down to the stage to get back to work on Mad God so there would be like this entire week's worth of Phil working by himself you know on a setup or something that we would see the next Saturday where it's suddenly like oh my god look at all this this is crazy you know Sometimes it would go from a really simple little, you know, little simple something to a much bigger set with a three axis camera move, you know, that um, uh, suddenly took 12 people to animate the whole shot, you know, or whatever. Um, So it was a lot of, I think for him, there was quite a stream of consciousness approach to it. Just kind of once he got that ball rolling, it was just keep it going, you know, and it, it, I think it, for a lot of us became a little bit of a lifestyle for a little while there. And um, yeah. Um, How yeah. did it feel? I mean, this, this process sounds like organic and grungy and like, and like uh, 
a primal almost. <laughs> I'm wondering, you know, how this is probably, I don't know if I've talked to anybody who's worked on like one project for more time, if that makes sense. How did it feel to like finally wrap up, wrap up the project? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I had maybe the biggest whiplash. <laughs> You're um, like, this is no longer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because it's like 24 frames per second, sloppy, organic, monstrous and grotesque. And then, um, you know, I, I was still doing some some CG for Tippet, but even in that, there's still a lot of that same philosophy. There's like a whole idea of like the Tippet slop, even in, in CG when they're doing their monster animation. It's not about having really clean animation. You want to have all the giblets and and goo that just gives like that organic biomaterial splatter but um when i decided to to leave st uh, the the cg side of things and and fully pursue stop motion uh my first job after mad god was going down to la and working for a, a essentially an agency that was teamed up with a toy company working with a, a product called lol surprise which is like a tiny little doll for like girls five through ten or something like that which yeah. was you know they wanted me to shoot a minute and a half a day compared to like taking 10 years to make you know <laughs> an hour or something like that so it was just this uh real complete contrast in in style fabrication yeah. and uh and look which was just very very fun for me um but also just uh really required me to do some cartwheels to adjust my expectations for what animation could be <laughs> i brag about it more than more than you never brag about it but you know i think david is singularly responsible for their brand's uh animated appearance i mean it was like you know, the, sh the shit that they were doing before you went down there was like laughable, you know, it was not not. But, you know, it took took someone like you to actually approach that idiotic stuff with enough integrity and interest to actually find some way to make them interesting. I'm, I'm always very impressed by what and I got dragged along for a lot of the ride I mean not dragged along but you I know. mean you can tell that I was maybe the one interfacing with the clients yeah not, not using <laughs> those adjectives for the for the brand um, yeah <laughs> man a minute and a half a day is crazy um yeah. Re, how did it feel to you know coming on the mad dog I keep saying mad dog mad god uh, project like as kind of instigating your professional career and then wrapping up after all these years how did that feel well I mean not to be too glib about it but we saw probably 10 mad god premieres <laughs> over the years uh, so it wasn't exactly sudden there there was a time at which we realized it was over um, because they had to release it, you know, but, um, you know, Phil had many ends in mind over the years. So it wasn't exactly, um, I mean, it's more just like the, the notation of a, the end of an era. But the truth is, by the time um, Mad God finally wrapped and came out, we were already up to our eyeballs in Mystery Meat Media. Um, yeah. So it wasn't, um, 
wasn't forward. And I, I wasn't as involved um, for the last maybe year and a half or so, aside from just coming by to say hello and be supportive and occasionally I think go in once or twice for a shot. But um, but yeah, no, we 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 got and again, like the value from my perspective was the the filmmaking aspects of getting to see like, okay, here's Phil's first, you know, 12 minute piece. And then two years later, Mad God part two came out. And then, you know, after three came out, he started working on building these assemblies of the whole thing. So it was like, there was a point at which we saw the first 45 minute cut and then, you know, it kind of just kept, but then, you know, I mean, like, like these things go, there were, there were some, moments there where it's like uh exactly is supposed to be happening here and then <laughs> once the the final I mean Phil had a few private screenings once he had the final one ready um and it, that was really pretty exciting just to kind of see how things got connected and, and tied up you know because it nice. didn't you know it doesn't have a super strong narrative now but it, it used to not at all nice <laughs> um, um fair enough let's let's talk about mystery meat a little bit so you know uh obviously you guys are working together and you've done amazing things now but like what inspired you to say like like hey do you want to go into business with me specifically and like let's do cool stuff together versus just like going off on your own or like working on projects with other companies like how did you guys I guess trusted each other enough to like go in business together, if that makes sense. Cause it's kind of rare for like a stop motion animator specifically to have like that business acumen partnership with somebody else and like, you know, do amazing stuff versus like, I want to do everything on my own and float around to different studios. Well, the one thing I was, I had been thinking about since you brought up the, the, the dynamic duo aspect is, <laughs> Agnes and <laughs> um, they're getting there. They're getting there. But um, you know, also thanks to Mad God, I realized that David was someone that I could spend ten hours with in a room, hmm. working on a, a shared goal. And I think that was sort of the initial kernel. Um, I started to pull him over to my place to work on the Moon's Milk, and then you know, we kind of any time either of us would get a, a freelance project, you know. David would be the first person I called to, you want to come help me do this and um, vice versa. And um, so, yeah, by the time we actually made Mystery Meat Media, we had spent a lot of time in the dark. Um, Literally. Know, <laughs> things around together, listening to each other's music and, you know. Insane conspiracy theories. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it, it it's true that like, not only did we have this stop motion experience together, but we had also had the the converse experience of working as computer animators at Tippett Studio as well. So Moon's Milk for him, uh, other small freelance projects that I was directing um, gave us a bite of cradle to grave filmmaking, which is the real passion for both of us. And then when we were working as animators at Tippett, you're very much a, a very small cog in an enormous machine. And it is a radically different experience. It allows you to, you know, walk away at the end of the, the day and not constantly have the gears turning about like, oh, how am I going to do X, Y, and Z? It, you're, it's, you can leave that work behind. And both of us didn't really want 
that. We wanted to have the the problems of constantly thinking about, you know, how are we going to get these edits to work? How is the sequence? How could that be better? How can we think about these films, you know, holistically? And how can we make those things pop a lot more than, you know, wading through, you know, the Ted 2 was, I think, the first first movie. Like, oh, hey, that that's my shot. And then you like, wait. Yeah, right. Oh. It's a blip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a little blip. And it's an incredible amount of teamwork and and coordination that we got to be a part of at Tippett, which was incredible. But both of us had a hunger for, I guess, being more in in control of sequences. Yeah. And um, I think just getting to be, you know, part of Mad God, we couldn't leave the the physical aspect of stop motion behind. And we also couldn't leave the the filmmaking aspect of it behind either. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm wondering, you know, for me, like, I, I feel very much the same. I'd rather have, like you said, cradle to grave kind of uh, control and like concept design and animation and cinematography, like all that, all that stuff, rather than like a cog in the wheel. And the way that I've been able to get those types of projects is just from creating and publishing personal work that uh, like gets noticed and I can share. Did did you have a similar, you know, you're working full time at Tippett's, you're working on CG stuff, you see your blip. How did you get, um, you know, clients to trust you could handle this whole, the whole process for them, you know, like come up with the idea, like the create the puppets, all that stuff. Uh, well, I mean, for me, you know, starting down the path of making the moon's milk, which was at the time, way more ambitious than anything I had made, including all the music I had made, whatever, but, um, and, um, you know, I spent seven and a half years making that film, um, which was sort of like the, the epic version of what you're saying, you know, making your own right. stuff, which is, by the way, the best thing to do, you know, as far as, uh, any advice for your listeners, you know, um, don't worry about getting a job. Just figure out how to make stuff, and right, right, jobs will come to you. <laughs> but um, yeah, we got um, uh, so while I was pretty deep in the moose milk and working at Tippet, I had all these contacts with the San Francisco Film Society, and the first sort of like mystery meet media project that I think of, uh, at least emotionally, which was long before we had come up with the name was um, the segment that we did for Boots Riley's Sorry to Bother You. And um, I got introduced to him through one of my friends at the Film Society, because that's where my old day job had been, and um, I knew people there. Um, <clears throat> so I got to meet Boots, and he was very, very impressed by the Tippet connection. Um, and um, I also got somehow lucky enough with the moon's milk that I was able to convince Tom Waits to narrate it um, when it finally came out. So that immediately adds like a veneer of professionalism aside, you know, in spite of the fact that it was shot in my tiny basement, you know, where you, neither of us, both of us have concussions from working down there. Um, but, um, but yeah, I think um, with boots particularly, which I would say was probably like our, I mean, our first, collaboration that was a high profile thing and sorry to bother you um it was a combination of you know the tippet connection where i was working on the moon's milk and 
having the confidence to just talk about that stuff. And also the fact that Boots was a, this was his first movie and he needed, he needed somebody to fill that role. And I wasn't, you know, once he met both of us, I think, I mean, David is, has always been um, the best stop motion ambassador. He just exudes enthusiasm for talking about the craft. And um, I think uh, that's just another, another one of those things that kind of buttresses, buttresses our relationship is just, um, you know, this combination of enthusiasm and technical technical you know i'm sure it helps you both have like connections around the place you're both professional have a, a lot of work um did did it kind of like happen organically from there you just kept getting clients people kept hearing about you um or have you ever reached a point where you're like uh we want to take mystery meat to the next level we need to like go out and and like start like uh getting doing quotes and stuff like that well I have this, I don't know if it's a confession, so to <laughs> I'm incredibly fortunate enough that stop motion, you know, there are independent projects, but it is by nature a collaborative process. And so there's always somebody cooking on one of their own projects or might need help on another one. And um, the projects that I've been brought in on, I've just been, you know, it's, what I love to do. And I go into it full tilt, super enthusiastic about it. And that seems to make an impact on, on the clients. So I actually, uh, the, here's the confession. I don't think I've gotten a single job I've applied for. Hmm. Um, I, it, it's only been because of my attitude and, and, uh, enthusiasm on projects I've been invited onto that makes an impact on producers or directors where after we wrap that project, they go off to uh, work at other studios and yeah. they're like, Oh, we want that guy who was, you know, screaming fuck. Yeah. At the end of every other animators shot when they, oh my do God. <laughs> we want that guy. We want, we want that enthusiasm. And um, so the actual, you know, official birth, of mystery media um you know when when we wasn't actually a purposeful choice uh by the two of us um essentially i had been going down to la shooting a bunch of toy commercials and one of the toy commercials was part of a, a larger feature and uh one of the producers on on that um that movie you know, I just like always love to to treat everybody like they love their job as much as I love mine. <laughs> and uh, uh, so we we really hit it off, had a great friendship, and he moved over to uh, Nickelodeon Viacom. And this was during the pandemic when there was this huge, uh, you know, opportunity for studios to just generate a bunch more content. And uh, he reached out to the two of us as we both worked on that that feature film down in LA. And he said, hey, if you guys can form a company that we can contract as a vendor, we don't want you just to, to come in and work on a project. We need you guys to make 45 minutes of content. Right. And so make the company and we'll get you the contract. That sounds amazing. I wish somebody would... 
hey, yeah. can you make a company so we can yeah. give you more money? Like well, <laughs> projects. Yeah. I mean, at the time it was horrifying. Yeah, you know, right. Business acumen came from. I mean, neither of us had ever even uttered that phrase, you know. Like suddenly it's like, oh you're like business? Yeah. I mean a company. The, the, uh, the learning curve, I think we were fortunate enough to sort of be um you know the golden retrievers of of the stop motion where we were just enthusiastic happy wanted to look good but just dumb as as bricks um so the the first the one i'm thinking of is they wanted a schedule <laughs> they wanted a schedule and budget for this like huge 45 minutes of content so we didn't know about like budgeting software and scheduling software and all of these things that all the producers like know like the back of their hand and re cooks up this beautiful photoshop document that's like color coded with all of these things totally non-interactive <laughs> just like this pdf of like a rainbow of information <laughs> just and got a number like, on it <laughs> yeah but what the hell is this we we need like an actual budget and schedule and that was when we were like okay, we need to find a producer because <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, clearly we're just two animators. Uh, and uh, that's when we started actually like going through all of the, the people that we knew from previous projects. And, um, you know, so we got really fortunate in a lot of ways, but it, I don't want to downplay the contributions we had to other projects and I think the the real takeaway is you never know who yeah. you're working next to and what they're going to go on to doing next. So like always apply 100% of your passion and enthusiasm to every project because it's not just about the end product there. It's about the the collaboration. It's about the the community of stop motion that you're you're participating in and yeah. they'll remember it and they'll think of you when they've got more projects down the line. I mean, the that makes one thing that I'm going to add to that, that is a little bit philosophical, but also quite practical is that the, the thing David didn't mention is getting stuff done, like actually finishing something yeah, yeah. massive. And I, I'm a person who spent seven and a half years making a personal film that felt like it was never going to end and I wouldn't do it again. And I don't recommend it, but having something done that you can present to the world as it were either in film festivals or on instagram or whatever um and realizing that you're free to move on to the next thing is uh both confidence building and confidence inspiring if you're talking mm -hmm. to clients and stuff they it's like no amount of talent or enthusiasm or anything is going to get very far if you don't finish something you know and so this this uh toy commercial film that that I worked with David on in LA um you know the most significant thing is it got done it got and it got done on time and like the Amazon executives were wandering around saying oh my god we had no idea that this was even going to be possible um so I think to be you know again I'm stroking my partner's ego here but I think that was a pretty pretty massive uh, impressive feat yeah for sure um, I, I just wanted to follow up on something you said, you know, it, it totally makes sense to, you know, have the best time connect with your coworkers. You never know when you're, you're gonna, they're gonna have another project that you need to jump on. But like, it also sounds like you're just naturally 
like that. Are you constantly thinking like, how can I make greater connections and build enthusiasm to have these opportunities? Because like, you know, what if you're a little bit more introverted or, but you just, you love the craft and stop motion just as much. Like, how do you, how do you genuinely build those connections and enthusiasm? Like, what is, what are you thinking in your mind when you're on a new project? Are you thinking like, how can I, how can I wrangle these people to like me so they bring out the next project? Or are you like, how can I immerse myself in this project in like uh in like an exciting way or something like that? Yeah, I mean, I I would call myself an introvert personally. Um I'm you know I'm I'm lucky enough that I get to do what I love as a job. So I can let that natural enthusiasm for the activity speak for me as opposed to um really focusing on the actual like social aspect of it um so hmm. i'm never really trying to schmooze or think about it as like a a networking activity it's that i get to do what i love and um i can't help but sort of bubble over when i get to do stop motion like i i have zero compatibility with the lol surprise toys you know it's just like not something that i would personally buy for myself but now at this point i've i've probably played with them more than anybody else on the face of the earth um and it's just like getting to learn the language of these toys um i mean it was a particularly strange presentation for that project because the actual producers had televisions uh hdmi connected to the laptops that were showing the animation so it wasn't like while we're animating yeah while we're animating oh, wow they're, okay they're there watching they're us. just pressing play over and over again to see one more frame come live <laughs> yeah, they can't even do that they're just they're watching they're watching us animate and... they're just getting paid to watch you animate <laughs> i mean call out it's is her hair just you know i mean because they're their product oh no <laughs> they're, they're looking at their their product not... of course of course yeah i've been in similar situations where i'm like but it looks better animation wise and they're like but it needs to be tilted just a little bit more so we get that full brand exposure yeah <laughs> so there's this sort of dance that i was doing for them i felt like a little bit of a bird of paradise just like <laughs> fluttering my feathers in front of the producers just because I'm getting to do the animation. They're seeing exactly every single choice that I'm making along the way. So even though it makes a lot of people groan to hear like you're doing the animation live in front of client, um, at the same time, it gives them a real appreciation for the medium and also it was a chance to interface and interact with the client on micro decision levels where they felt really integrated and included as part of the project. Okay. It wasn't just, hey, here's the animation. Do you like it? If you don't, we'll have to redo it. It was more like if, if they would call out something for the eyeline or, oh, they don't want to show that part of the doll or things like that. It was, it was this real back and forth collaboration where mm -hmm. they uh got to know me on a you know day-to-day -day, like procedural level and I was just really focused on making sure that 
they were happy with the product they were getting. So uh, sometimes I call it getting into my like monkey clapping the symbols suit where it's like, oh, I'm like going to be interfacing with producers really close. I, I, I can't let, you know, a bad day right. and me getting all like pissed off and frustrated come across. There is a, there is a performance aspect to it, but the thing is, is that I, animation is my happy place. If I'm, if I get to, you know, essentially these dolls are like bouncing balls. Um, so if you, if you nail a bouncing ball animation and it looks good, like that just makes me feel good. Yeah. <laughs> and they can see that. And um, when you feel good working with a, a product that comes across in the, in the, in the final animation. Um, so there wasn't really a schmoozing aspect of it. It was just people getting to witness me doing what I love. Nice. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and thanks for that insight there. I, yeah, it's I find it interesting that you say you're not a you're you're kind of introverted, but then you use like stop motion and the love of the craft to like bring out the more extroverted qualities, I guess, of yourself that that other people pick up on. That makes a lot of sense. I'm wondering, you know, you both made Mystery Meat during the pandemic. It's been a couple of years now. You, I, I think, at least from my perception, you're slowly gearing yourselves more towards like independent projects through Mystery Meat. Is there an overall, now that you've had this company, is there an overall goal? Like, do you, are you still happy to like jump on TV shows? Um, or are you trying to like build up Mystery Meat to like, you know, produce your own stuff, produce more independent stuff? Like what's, What's the path? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think both of us have wanted to do uh, independent personal stuff um, yeah. forever. And having a studio with resources is definitely something that can enable that. Um, so I would say that's definitely the dream. The nightmare is winding up in a situation where we have to you know, start cold calling ad agencies all over the Bay Area yeah. because our rent, um, which hasn't happened yet. We've been we've been really lucky so far. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think you know personally, I, I'm working with Boots is extremely rewarding. Boots Riley, um, he he gives us an enormous amount of freedom. So like those types of jobs are well-paying and dream jobs in that we're we're really hired for filmmakers who can execute the stuff with this particular style of animation that we we decide or whatever um and <clears throat> so yeah i think you know the flip side of this coin always again is coming back to your your business uh, background is that we got rent to pay now you know we have an employee that we are trying to you know keep on a healthcare plan and you know, pay, pay for ourselves. I mean, there's like all these adult things associated with running a company that yeah, right. make it, you know, a little bit harder, but both of us right now, we're in kind of a, a low, a lull because par partially because of the, all the Hollywood strikes, right. but also um, we just wrapped up this turtles thing. So I think both of us are kind of trying to flex some, you know, muscle on some other types of projects that just so that we could have, I mean, the other thing, I mean, the other thing that's nice about having done what we've done so far, as stressful as it's been at times, is that we've gotten a ton of experience talking with people in the industry, you know, like uh, producers and more producers. And then there's other producers that want to talk, you know, it's generally what they like doing is talking a lot. Um, but uh, 
we've gotten a lot more insight into like how to prepare pitch decks and how to how to talk about projects that there might not be something real tangible for yet you know yeah. um which is also helping i think both of us think about our own ideas for things that we'd like to make it's like you know 10 years ago it would have felt like homework to have to sit down and work out a screenplay you know but like now having worked with people it's a little easier to kind of see that it's like a shorthand or a shortcut or it's just it's a language that people speak and understand so it's kind of like same analogy being my stupid little you know photoshop schedule and budget um you know there there's there is some sort of common parlance that you can pick up on and that just yeah. helps kind of like get conversations going and stuff like totally that. i think it's incredible that you you've maintained your studio you've hired somebody you know those are really hard benchmarks to get um and now that you're thinking about producing your own stuff and you know you've been around other people producing their own stuff for years and years especially phil um what is the ideal scenario for you guys like would you want to like you know 80% of the time work on commercial projects and then 20% of the time like produce something that that David is heading up and then the other time produce something that Rhea is heading up or like are you collaboratively coming up with a screenplay together like what would a what would ideal situation be now that you have a all these contacts be all this experience in the industry see these assets with the company um and d the future <laughs> yeah i mean we have been very uh i guess like fiscally conservative with how we're pulling money out of the company because you know as as much fun as it was to to work on mad god for burritos we don't have the <laughs> phrase for burritos <laughs> uh other other uh aspiring um filmmakers and animators uh the opportunity to to you know, work for free for, for our, our projects. So we really want to be able to offer um, above market rates for animators, fabricators. It's not just a, uh, uh, an opportunity. It is important that if you want to do this, you can, you can pay rent and you can dedicate yourself to the craft. So we want to be able to have enough to offer uh, via contractors or employees, uh, you know, a good wage to to work on these things with us. And that does mean, you know, taking a lot of commercial jobs, but it's with the idea that we're banking money so that we can have a payroll for people to like really dedicate themselves to the projects that we're going to be producing independently. Um, I think both of us have, you know, our own passion projects and some of them are, uh, you know, mixed media video games that Rhea is making. Um, I'm writing some scripts. I think we've also had a long running dream that um, is a bit more of leaning into the community and, and the network because we have all of these incredible uh, artists that we, we you know, sort of have in the Rolodex, so to speak. And we want to be making a uh, anthology series that has like a sort of bridging narrative um, that we could animate that through the travels of these characters through a series of uh, short films, essentially. It exposes uh, sort of a bunch of different artists and their films and their contributions. 
um because there's just so many incredible people out there dedicated to making their own stuff but you know beyond putting it on instagram or, or social media if it's not long enough to enter into a film festival like where does it live right. um and we would love to just make a a vessel that can contain all of the incredible creations by all the different stop motion animators we know and then put it in this sort of uh new format uh allows us to tell some of the stories we've been thinking of for for years and years but also allows us to you know work with a whole bunch of the people we know and love and then kind of go into uh sharing that as you know potentially it's an incubator if someone sees it and they want to expand on one of those projects that'd be you know, ideal but just providing a place for stop motion to live um is one of the big goals of mystery Meat media Totally, I love that. I love that you you guys are thinking in an expanding expanding way. Riri, you were going to say something. Yeah, well, they're just that that project's kind of like a you know sort of like the format of sketch comedy or something or like psychedelic mm -hmm. sketch comedy that's all animated or not even motion psychedelic sketch comedy. That sounds like a great pitch right there. <laughs> I mean, Love Death Robots came to be somehow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. I mean, you know. From Mr. Show to, to Tim and Eric to yeah, right. On the Air, there's a, a history of anthologies and, and and shorter sketches that, you know, they're not all great, but that's what's so beautiful about shorter format stuff. It's not mm. these high-risk gambles. It's like mm. you can have a whole bunch of small projects. Some of them will you know, titillate one person and others will make another person laugh. It's not all about, you know, gambling it all or all or nothing on one big idea. Yeah, uh, yeah. So exposing a whole bunch of smaller ideas where people can can feel free that they aren't, you know, risking, you know, years and years of their life. They can just do a little cool couple month long project and have a place to show. Maybe it'll maybe it'll grab someone's attention. Totally. And stop motion is perfect for that because it takes so long to make anything of long format. Also, titillate. That's not a word I hear every day. <laughs> um, I have a I have a question that I had before that I didn't get an opportunity to ask. Um, stop motion is is there's not a ton of it like and from I guess like I live in Canada and I've competed with studios uh, for projects that I'm also competing with Stupid Buddy like and all these other um you know studios in the states and uh there's not a lot of products to go around you know do you find that you're also competing with all the other studios um for all these things <laughs> well i mean a a really big part of the the education leading up to making this company um is we've sort of you know, we've worked with a lot of people who've been, you know, decades longer in the industry than us. And so they've seen the rise and fall of lots of small studios. And um, one of the biggest causes of, you know, the collapse of a studio is when you get fixated on uh, having a certain standard for the projects you'll accept. Hmm. Um, a lot of people, you know, they might think that, you know, little toy commercials or or things for girls five to 10 or whatever is like, oh, like we're, we're a bigger studio. We're beyond that. We want to be going just for TV, just for yeah, yeah. feature film. Um, and 
those little toy gigs are are bread and butter for us. They really help, you know, pay the rent. So it's, we're still very much in a phase of like, we have to say yes to everything, you know, um, now that we have specific overheads, we do have a, a bottom line budget wise, but it's about really having an enthusiasm for projects of any scale. That's really important for staying um, with the lights on here. That makes a lot of sense. Do you, do you ever feel like you might, you know, not get bigger projects? I mean, you have gotten bigger projects. Like you just did like I'm a Virgo or whatever, which is totally different scale as like, you know, the the LOL toys. Like, do you ever, are you ever worried about pigeonholing? Or I guess that's the wrong word, but like, you know, not getting a higher caliber project because you've taken on these other types of like social media projects that might give the wrong impression? I mean, I think that's one of the, great things about working as a duo um, because I have a uh, a tolerance for, you know, putting on the monkey suit and, <laughs> and clapping the symbols for these social media YouTube things where Re has connections with real filmmakers and artists yeah, yeah, of a higher caliber. So I kind of have a uh, bring in the, the, the little projects that might be a bit more frequent and then re is out there uh being a nantucket whaler getting the the huge gigantic jobs um nice. that really are it's not even about putting on a, a monkey suit and talking to producers he's interfacing with other filmmakers and talking with people on a, a level of like mutual musical and and creative respect that is different than finding you know a studio that's willing to to play with dolls um so it makes a lot of sense and it sounds like a great balance yeah, yeah. but i mean to directly answer your question i've never thought about it the, okay great the, i mean <laughs> don't think about it sorry i asked <laughs> yeah no no, no. I did, not, not to be disparaging but that you know you can always i mean everybody has to do something you know to yeah. make a living and you know, I, I'm friends with Frank Zappa's daughter, and she told me once that, you know, Frank Zappa even used to have to take, you know, advertising jobs because an album wasn't selling or whatever, you know. Right, right, right. And so the pigeonholing question is always going to just come down to how how we present ourselves. I mean, that's where, like, I think Apartment D and um, uh, Open the Portal, those guys are really good at their own, like, personal branding, mm. you know especially open the portal they've got this whole like universe right 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 um it's pretty fun and enticing and so like for us i mean on our website we kind of present everything that we've done just for breadth or whatever but you're always a little bit in the driver's seat in terms of because you know it's to be perfectly honest you know it's very rare for somebody to like pluck out of the universe you know just come out of the sky and find you and be like i like your stuff i want you to work for me you know right you pretty much all it's always about putting something out there if it's on a job or on the internet or whatever and you've got control over that you know so even if we've worked on lol surprise and making you know these horrifying horse transformations and sorry to bother you you know um we kind of know well another sorry i'm getting a little off a little sidetrack here but one of the things i i learned early in my career is that there's often going to be two types of, of potential client that you're going to encounter and 
the first kind is the kind that knows exactly what they want and what they want it to look like. So for a little while there, everybody wanted Pez, you know, something that looked like Pez with pixelated hands coming in, manipulating, whatever. And <clears throat> that's all they were interested in talking about. So if you can show somebody that you can do that, then immediately you're on their radar. The other type is a little bit more ephemeral, but it, and I don't mean to sound so cynical, but it's like producers who had creative lives in college or whatever. They got sucked into this grind and hate their jobs now, but they love seeing like really creative, talented people do stuff and like, ooh, I want to get that guy to come in and work on this like aspirin commercial for us because, you know, that's super creative and they'll be able to do anything. So, I, and I've honestly had both types of clients and it's um kind of up to you to figure out who you're dealing with, you know, when you start yeah, talking yeah. to someone about a project. And I mean, not, we're lucky right now and that we're just not famous enough to get pigeonholed into anything so it's kind of like we can still do anything and um you know if, if we know we're talking to somebody who's going to be really impressed by i'm a virgo you know we can put on our t-shirts and talk we about can do I'm that for you <laughs> that makes a lot of sense and and uh yeah that, i uh, totally makes sense the two types of clients yeah yeah i'm wondering you know i don't want to take up your whole day uh i feel like i've got a, a good brain pick out of both of you is there anything that we didn't talk about that that you wanted to bring up? Any, I don't know, past experiences, cool jobs, uh, anything, whatever that is on your mind that you still wanted to share? I mean, there's there's one project that is still very close to my heart. Um, and with the release of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles coming out, I, um, I got to work with Woodrow White, um, hmm. who was the lead character designer on uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And the two of us were really big uh, fans of like B or even C grade sci-fi movies. Yeah. Um, and it isn't even really the movies themselves, but it was the trailers. That was uh, our real passion. And we, the two of us cooked up um, sort of a love letter to sci-fi trailers and we made a series of three trailers for a uh stop motion sort of live action mixed media film called quadrant and that was just a way for us you know no client no no reason beyond just the love of the process yeah. um we brought rian who did some incredible stuff with with color and, and sound mixing um and it was just a way for us to follow our passion. And it was just, you know, almost all of my friendships are project-based. It's just like, I'm I'm happy to like grab a drink and chat, but I'll really feel truly myself if we get to work on something together. That's yes. where I feel like I get to thrive. And um, what was really rewarding about that project was, um, Apparently, when Woodrow was on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and he was designing some, some, you know, the look of some of the sets and maybe some of the characters, they were like, "Oh, could you make that look like Quadrant?" <laughs> it was like, "Oh, cool, hell yeah!" Nice, so nice, it was nice. just was like getting to see how some of these little passion projects that you aren't doing for uh, money or exposure, you're just doing it for the love of of the topic can be contagious. People can see that and they can, they can ask for you to go further down that rabbit hole. Um, Ooh, yeah. 
and, and getting to see that. I'm, I'm going to go watch the movie this weekend and uh, I can't wait because that, that guy is uh, an incredible designer. The movie sort of looks like his paintings. Um, so it's just really exciting to see how the people that you collaborate with years years ago can really come in and they can go on to do incredible things uh, later down the road and stuff that you never expect. Right. That is awesome. And it, it, it's so true that stuff that you work on just because you're passionate ends up being way more impactful than the, the stuff you do for money sometimes. Um, Marie, did you have anything uh, that you wanted to share maybe as we're wrapping up? Well, I was... Plants, plants. Oh, yeah. For plants. Um, yeah, no, that's another... It's, it's a stop motion adjacent project that I have. Um, I grow a lot of... Uh, tropical pitcher plants yeah 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 yeah. i've seen all these videos <laughs> um yeah that was another pandemic project where i just uh found myself looking at them every day wondering just because they grow really slowly and uh you know some of them are kind of expensive too so it's just sort of like god damn it what are you doing what are you doing um so i started shooting these time lapses of them and i don't know i feel like i'm slowly untangling some of the you know string theory mysteries of the universe by uh this this investigation but i don't know what they are yet so we'll have to talk later but um but yeah um yeah i mean i think that the the main takeaway i i think is you know i i've never really understood it until we started the company and i actually had to had to start thinking about it but like the idea of crafting a career or like you know making choices that were going to lead you down it was just sort of you know if you've got a little you know what are those things called dousing rods yeah yeah right pointing it around and it, it like rings you know just follow it um because you're gonna get somewhere much much more satisfying than trying to you know to manufacture your yeah exactly uh, i mean yeah i think that's great advice i remember like when i was in animation school there are people that are like super set on like getting in at Pixar specifically and then they don't get in. It's super disappointing. And then there's people who like go with the flow and end up there at Pixar anyways. But it's just like they were just doing the thing and, you know, doing what they did best. And and that proved way better as like a just a mentality, I guess, to have. Um, and you end up you never know what you're going to work on that takes off anyway. So, yeah. Pretty uh, so tunnel visioned that if you go if you go to the tunnel within the tunnel then you're giving yourself a very small point of light to aim at where if you right. can just be more open to the opportunities um, totally totally i mean it is possible but it's uh, you'll you'll probably have a much worse time and then when you get there you don't even know if you'll like it <laughs> so uh, well, David and Marie, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. Um, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and taking your time to do this. It's been great. Really appreciate you reaching out. It's a lot of fun. Of course, of course. And if you're listening and you want to follow, uh, you know, Re or David or check out Mystery Meet, I'm going to include the website, their Vimeos and their Instagram links. And those will all be in the description of this chat. So thank you so much for listening. And that's all for now. Okay, bye. The music for this podcast was composed by Willem Mando and the graphics by Luhan Wang. I encourage you to look them up if you've enjoyed their work.